Hello and welcome to the UK Scriptwriters Podcast with me, Danny Stank. And me, Tim Clay, yet again. And uh, first off, straight away, we're going to plug our book because we've been doing this podcast now for 11 years and we just do it for fun. Um, we don't have any sponsors or anything like that. But if you do want to support us in any way, then the best way is to buy our book, which is the UK Scriptwriters Survival Handbook, which is out now about four or five years. Uh, but it's a very practical guide to surviving as a screenwriter based on myself and Tim's mm. experience. Um, so that's the best thing to do there. But we're going to go dive straight into the podcast because we're very excited to welcome back to the podcast uh, writer-director Justin Trefgarn. Hello, Justin. Hello. Hi. Justin, you're the, you're the first person that we've had back, we were trying to think. Yes. It's a great honour. What a yeah. legend. If anybody's familiar, I first interviewed uh, Justin back in July 2017, it was. So was already, it now? Okay. Yeah, it was four years ago now. Uh, but uh, Justin sent me a note just saying things that he'd been up to and things that would be interesting to share. And I was immediately intrigued. Plus something you said on Twitter about uh, just uh, Julian Fellows, which got me even more intrigued. So I thought, let's get Justin back on and he can tell us what he's been doing. Mm. Um, for our listeners, Justin, do a quick summary of yourself to remind them about who you are and, and kind of a bit about your background. Um, yeah, well, you and I, Danny, we first met when I was a uh, script editor, story editor at Working Title, um, which I did for four years. And before that, I'd started life in the theatre. Um, in fact, I went to you know, did university drama school, theatre, um, wanted to direct. Um, back in the day, of, you know, when you're that young, my plan was to become a famous actor and then segue effortlessly into film directing. And of course, that is exactly what happened. Um, anyway, so a few years after that, I found myself... Um, at working title, working script editor, you know, scribbling around in the background. And then after four years left, made a short film. Um, in fact, made a short film while I was there and then got commissioned to write a feature and sort of started a career, you know, mercifully earning a living as a screenwriter, um, all the while with my eye on the prize of directing a film. Did a few more shorts and then ended up, um, yeah, and, and amongst other things, you know, writing all along, but then ended up making a feature, my first feature film in, um, which came out end of 2015, early 2016, um, called Narcopolis, which is a kind of sci-fi sort of thriller. Um, and since then, yeah, and then, yeah, so that's really where I stand now. So I'm, I'm still writing, still directing. I also now um, work for the Met Film School. I teach as well, which has been a great bonus to my life. Um, and yeah, scribbling away. In fact, yeah, so let's start at the end. Let's start with the plug. I mean, I've got nothing really to plug other than, yeah, I'm now just about to make my own foray into podcasting so I've got oh. a I've just had a podcast commissioned actually which is sort of top secret but it's um I can't say what it is but it's a it's not a it's a sort of hybrid so it's not interviews but it's a kind of um it's a sort of adaptation of a classic novel but done in a very unusual way so um that's Ooh. all I can say but that's just yeah that got greenlit a couple of weeks ago just had the budget signed off so that's yeah that's the next next challenge are okay. you just writing that, Justin, or are you? Uh, I don't mean just writing it, but you know, are you yeah, directing I'm just, it as well. I, I'm writing and I am directing it, yeah. Mm. And I'm mercifully, you please hear, I'm not appearing in it. <laughs> <laughs> oh, well, we let's... just get that then. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. Let's take you back to 2016 then, when um, Narcopolis was out and you're kind of, um, you know, post film, post release. Uh, and you're kind of taking the next steps. What's what's happening in your life to um, 
push things forward. Or yeah, well, it's funny. We were, I think, when we last spoke, and that was 2017, wasn't it? So I yeah. think, so I was, I remember I was sitting in an office that I was renting um, off Lexington Street in Soho, writing a YouTube series. So I had been commissioned, well, in fact, I'd been asked to, yeah, to come in and work as the head writer on a YouTube series, a sort of, um, sort of young adult animation sci fi thing, um, which was very exciting. Um, and that was um, underway. So I was literally in the sort of absolutely in the trenches at that point, I think when we spoke. And I was also attached to um, a di- uh, director feature film, um, which was being produced by a company called Fullwell 73, who are a big company, very exciting production company. Um, their TV arm produces James Corden's Late Late Show and various other things and their fiction arm I was working for. So everything was going great guns, actually. The film had come out and our copies had come out and it had done okay. I mean, it hadn't made a huge impression in the UK, but we'd done all right in the US. We'd had a kind of graphic novel spin-off and it had had something, been something of a, I guess, cult success, which is a way, I think, of saying that some people loved it some people hated it and it didn't make much money <laughs> but it was but it was there you know and I was excited and I had this bigger project it was a bigger budget about four million pound budget I was co-writing the script um and it was very exciting actually and I was very much looking forward to that and if and we were about to go to cast I think at the time for this project um it was a thriller it was originally set in the UK and then on the advice of both producers and in fact CAA who were hoping to package it out in the US, um, we were advised to kind of rewrite it as an American project. Is this your second feature? Is this what you're This was going to be my second feature, yeah. So okay. it was all, all good to go. And, um, and then we started sending it to um, actors, actresses, because in fact the other thing that was distinctive about the film was that almost all the main characters were women. And I mean, this was not a calculated step by us. I, I, in fact, I was sent the project um, by a producer um, and it had already been written. So this was not my design at all. It had already been designed that way, but it was very intriguing, a sort of quite heavy, true detective sort of procedural where most of the main characters are women. So the tough sort of cop, as it were, the main character was a woman. Um, the, the main villain was a, was ended up being a woman. It was a really cool story actually, but it was done, um, it, it, so anyway, so we, we, we'd been writing very hard. We then sort of relocated it to the US and we sent it off to, CAA who were very excited to package it. We had sales interest. And then um, everyone started to say no. <laughs> so, so we had the, uh, yeah, so I had the sort of interesting and, and, and sort of the, the bloody nose of getting not one, but many passes from leading act- actresses at the time. And, you know, it was interesting because the, the the support I was getting from my producers and my agent, my lovely agent Andrew Mills, who's still my agent, you know, was 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 great, and they were very much behind me directing the project. You know, I pretty much made the film in my head by this point. I was ready to go, and then you know, you just start to get, you know, sort of three months becomes four, five, six, and I think we crossed over the six month mark, and we had no one attached to the project. And everyone was still being very supportive, but then um, reality started to kick in. And we were now sort of about a year and a half or a year or so after, I think, the sort of big eruption, the sort of Me Too post-Weinstein thing in, in Hollywood. And it was Christmas, I'd say it was Christmas 2017, I, I think that's when it was, when my producer at Fullwell got a call from CAA and they were like, listen, this is a 
great project, we love it, but we think we could get it made with a female director. And to his credit, he you know, immediately came back to me and said, um, look, this is the conversation I've had, full transparency. Um, what do you think of that? And I said, um, well, you know, kind of fuck everybody. You know, I, was, I, I didn't quite say that, but I was, I hope I can swear on this podcast, no sponsors. Yeah. So I was pretty cross, you know, and, but I, of course it was the first insight into things that were to come. But I think what I then, you know, over the course of sort of mulling this over over Christmas, I then thought to myself, well, look, I can't be the reason this film doesn't get made. We put so much work into it. If the writing's on the wall, perhaps I should step, step aside and we should bring in another director. So we sort of talked about it and everyone agreed that if I came on as a producer, I was still, a, I was still, a, you know, still going to be a credited writer, hopefully. So we went out and found another director who was a female director. And, you know, we had some meetings and anyway, long and short of it was the, the project slowly died. Mm. And I well, think it was. Think, what, what do you think w was the reason why it wasn't resonating with those actresses? Because I think that's, it's almost like, I mean, we love stories of woe on the podcast, <laughs> Justin. You know, we love to hear about these epic failures and everything. It makes yeah. us feel better. We've got our own. But, you know, I, I think that they're only great if you can delve into them and sort of think, yeah. well, what can, what can we learn? What can the listeners learn from that? What, what do you think it wasn't, you know, why wasn't it, I don't know, kind of humming with people? Why wasn't it like someone going, oh, this is a good role. I could get into this. What was it about it? It obviously wasn't yourself because it didn't take off, you know, when you were swapped out. So it must have been something in the story or, or what was it? No, well, I think, I think it was a combination. I mean, I, I actually, I do think a lot of it was me. I think it was something I had to come to terms with is actually that I wasn't, um, you know, Narcopolis had been, you know, personal sort of hugely transformative experience for me. And obviously, you know, you can live in that bubble, but actually if you're, if you're counting the beans in LA and you're looking at success, you know, what kind of directors you want to put your actors towards, I, I don't think I was on the, these people's lists. You know, I, I think that was the reality. I mean, I was on my own list in my head, but actually, you know, they have the pick of the, they, have the, they, they can pretty much pick and choose in terms of, um, you know, I think you, my sense is that if you're a critical success or you're a commercial success, either one of those things is enough to get you into the club. Mm. And, I, and I described it to a friend the other day. It felt like, you know, sort of you, you imagine the film industry, particularly the American film industry is a sort of, I, I sort of picture it as it's like a party. And I think making Narcopolis kind of got me an invite to the party. But what I didn't realize was that the, there's a VIP room to which I had not been invited. And I think when you're looking at, actresses like Kate Hudson, Margot Robbie, and various other people that we were offering to, you know, they're being, they're working with Scorsese. They're working with, you know, um, the, 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 you know, Tarantino. Mm. And those, that, that's who's booking them. Mm. And I think unless you're the sort of best friend of one of these people, your, your chances of really landing one of those actors without the kind of currency of a critical or commercial hit is very, very small. Do you think, so think you were trying to jump a little bit to, I mean, myself and Danny have this discussion. We're having it right now, funnily enough, because we've done two, two movies, you know, but both small, both, um, you know, micro budget in kind of style, but moving upwards in the right direction. Yeah. And we, you know, we're working on our third movie and we don't want to go too high. 
because yeah. we'll we'll run out of VIP invite, if you see what I mean. We'll be trying to push it too far too soon, and people will go, well, these guys can't support such a movie. You know, yeah. I think is it about kind of taking those, not baby steps, but logical leaps rather than trying to go, right, I'm, I'm, I'm excited, I'm going to reach all the way over here in one step. I think to a degree, you're probably right. I mean, I, you know, even though I've had these jobs, like a working title, whatever, you know, I've always felt a little bit of an outsider in the industry because I didn't come through traditional channels. I've done a lot of different things. So I think in a way there also wasn't the currency there for me. You know, my first feature, yes, I've done a few shorts, but I hadn't won any festival prizes. I hadn't got this kind of momentum. You can see, you know, that some people do have a certain trajectory. Um, I think you're right. I mean, it was a, I, I think for me, the warning signs were, if I'm honest, I remember thinking when they said, let's move it to America, I remember a little part of me that I didn't really want to listen to going, uh-oh, that's, that's quite a big jump, you know, because originally it was going to be this kind of two million pound film set in Norfolk, which I think probably, <laughs> but actually it was going to be pretty cool, you know, sort of true detective in, on the Norfolk, yeah, you know, yeah. the Norfolk coast, which I knew, I knew Norfolk very well. I know that coastline like the back of my hand. I'd, re, I'd written the project, rewritten the project for that landscape. And I felt like it had come from somewhere authentic, as it were. I don't like that word, but it did. And as a consequence, there was something about it that was convincing. And I think that suddenly I saw myself, once people start saying to you, you know, well, how about doing it in America? We're going to shoot it at Kentucky, good tax breaks, work with Margot Robbie or whoever, you know, Sienna Miller, these kinds of people, amazing, like proper actors, but like, but glamorous sort of, you know, Hollywoody actors. E you know, your ego, of course, is like, yes, that's where I saw myself. And you're right, maybe I did do the jump. I, you know, mentally I leapt over a step, which was to make a film that was bigger than Narcopolis, because Narcopolis, all in all, cost under a million dollars. But, you know, we made it look like lots more, but that was because we just, we took four years to make. I mean, it was a complete, it was a Herculean labor to get that film made. And I think in a way, I, I, I allowed myself to get seduced by the idea that there was a kind of shortcut. Mm. But partly because, you know, when someone says to you, come and, you know, here, make this film and we'll do it for this and you're great and da 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 da, you know, you believe it because that's the nature of this industry is you do these opportunities sometimes do suddenly creep up on you. And if you're not ready for them, then you're going to miss out. You know, it might pass you away. It turns out I think it was a phantom opportunity. I don't yeah. think the problem was that it was three years of my life that I'd spent mm -hmm. attached to that film in total before it collapsed. And, you know, to be honest, I think it's still in development and I think I'm probably still attached to it in some description, but there's no, you know, it, it was, it was pretty brutal, but I think it taught me quite a lot. And actually I think it was the, it was, it was one of many experiences that, that over that time that for me were kind of, there's this thing David Mamet said, which was that um, it, there's a book of his called three uses of the knife. And he talks about the second act of, um, the script being the hardest act. They said, you know, basically, they said the quality of a film is really in its second act. You know, most people can set up a story, most people can end a story, but it's the it's what makes a film classic. Really, is what happens in the middle. And he said the reason that's so damn hard is because actually that is the bit that mirrors life. That most of your life is a second yeah, act. Yeah, 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 yeah. And if you're doing your job properly as a writer and as a director, you're mining that kind of experience. And I think in a way. It's it, 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 the sort of the, the, the 
that it was so difficult to get that film. Well, what I say, the reaction I had to that was quite extreme as much as I felt quite sort of humbled by it, but possibly not in the way that I thought I was going to be humbled. You know, there was a kind of, there was a lot of anger and I felt quite sort of pissed off at people. And I felt kind of like I'd been robbed of three, you know, and I think I was heading towards something that, that was, I think, a, perhaps a richer understanding of my place in the world. Um, but, you know, I had to get there. And in a way, it was, it was a humbling because it was kind of up to that point, I could see my, my life as a sort of linear, you know, I, I could see like, okay, the story is kind of, the chapters are kind of in the right order. Left working title, you know. Do, that do, you, think, do you think though it's, there's still a chance to reset that project and almost go back to that uh, Norfolk two mil vision of it? Or do you, are you now so not, not tired of it, but almost like you can't bear to go back round it again. And, and, and we wouldn't blame you for that. I think there's a bit of that. Um, I, I, I behaved, you know, in such a, I, I think, you know, the, the, I, I fell out with the writer, the other writer, and I, I take um, response, some responsibility for that because I felt like he was not delivering for me. And we kind of, you know, I think we sort of, I externalized some of the internal difficulties I was having. I feel like I was, I was giving other people a hard time for some of the things that I was feeling, you know, I would feel like I was, I was losing control. I think also I had this idea, I had this plan of how my career was going to map out. And although you have your sort of, the sort of obstacles I'd encountered along the way, this one felt like, this didn't feel like part of the plan, if you know what I mean. Mm. And, and I didn't really have any, at the, at the time, I didn't really know what I had to, to, to cope with this. I thought, you know, in, when I'm, in terms of, I didn't have resources, the, the resources I thought I had, I considered myself quite a resourceful, resilient person. And on the surface, I was fine. I was coping, I was dealing with it. I was, you know, going about my business. And I was lucky that the YouTube project was was also, you know, had been happening sort of concurrently with that. So I've been earning a living. Mm. Um, but then at the same moment as this film going apart, I got a call from my YouTube producers saying basically um, they want to get a female writer in to because it had been a female protagonist and to do some basically actually at the end of the day, it was only a dialogue polish, but at the state I was in, I interpreted it as another big sort of rejection. Mm. And I was like, oh man, what's happening? You know, this is all falling. And, I'm, and I, I felt like I'd become a sort of target for sort of, you know, um, you know, I, I started, you know, people talk a lot about the sort of the, the white male writer. And I think, but like I was somehow becoming the sort of the, the, the person everyone was channeling this towards. Let's get rid of him and let's, you know, and it was kind of, so, so it, was, it was difficult to sort of know how to navigate that. And I, I realized, I think I didn't really have the kind of tools I thought, well, initially I didn't have the tools in, you know, straight away to, to, to deal with that. But what I did do though, is I did, instead of think about this film, I thought um, instead of resurrecting it in some way, you know, and I've had conversations with the producers, producers since, and we've talked about, you know, what about doing it this or like doing that when it's still in some way sort of alive somewhere, but there was sort of bad blood there. And also I felt to me that there was something about, my, you know, I felt like a cleaner slate probably was what was needed and something. So I, I did go away and write something else for me to direct that I sort of crafted in such a way as it was like, I'm not going to let anybody get their hands on this. Like, this is going to be my film um, in such a way that, you know, maybe it was an act of defiance. I don't know, but it was funny enough, Danny, it was around this time that I was, that I met Julian Fellows, who we talked about, you know, briefly when we emailed each other. And I think that, um, you know, 
he was very helpful in because I he knows my dad from sort of another part of walk of life. And I met him for a sort of, you know, had that thing where I said, Oh, you could always meet Judith fellows for a drink. He might be able to help, you know? So it was, it felt a bit cringy and I was like, Oh, but actually, and I didn't know him from Adam. I thought this, you know, he, the, the persona is quite intimidating, you know, sort of the sort of upper class kind of the guy that created Downton Abbey, but actually he is the most generous. He's a lovely man. Very, very sort of very wise, totally gets Hollywood plays the upper class thing to, you know, perfectly in order to get, what he wants, but at the same time, he's very aware of the world he's in. And he very famously said to me, I remember I was sitting there sort of slightly sort of feeling sorry for myself, expecting him to sort of bail me out, you know, <laughs> in some way with a kind of, with some sort of wisdom. And he just said, look, just so you know, you've never made it, you know? And I think that was a really useful phrase to hear because it was very, you know, from someone from someone who's won an Oscar for best screenplay and created Downton Abbey, which I think was the most watched TV show in the world at one point or something crazy, you know, to then be saying, because he was saying, listen, I've got a film. We haven't been able to cast it. Everyone's saying no, da, 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 you know, and I think that film probably got made. But the point is, he was reminding me of the sort of, in a way of how dispensable I was. And actually, I think that's part of the the journey is to is to understand that actually these sort of threshold experiences are not really there to kind of shore up your ego. They're actually there. They're, they're opportunities for you to kind of abandon your ego and to understand your place in the cosmos a bit better. Because I think really that for me has been one of the sort of major discoveries of this whole period of my life, which is actually my sort of complete irrelevance. And I don't mean that in a sort of it's not sort of fake humility. I mean, that. I think, you know, I, I don't, you know, stop, stop imagining that anyone gives a shit. Do you know what I mean? Like no one yeah, cares. Yeah, exactly. exactly. And no one care. You know, you might care, but don't expect any, why should any, why should any, why should Margot Robbie read my script? I mean, going back to mm. your initial question about why did, do you think did that film not happen? I think one of the reasons is because no one read it. Yeah. I don't believe a single one of those actors read the script. Mm. It's at the bottom of the pile. It's at the bottom of the pile. Well, and I think it's partly because they look at, they go, right, Tarantino, Scorsese, mm. you know, whoever it might be, you know. Um, yeah, and yeah, then yeah. they go, oh, Justin Trefgan, who the fuck is he? Do you know what yeah. I mean? Like, yeah, maybe yeah. wonder. And, it's, and even if someone's saying, listen, he's really great, you've got to meet him, da 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 People kept saying, oh, if they met you, don't worry, once you're in the room with them, you'll get them. You know, it's like, where that room might as well be on Mars. Do you know yeah. what I mean? In terms yeah, of, yeah, yeah. like, the room I'm going to be in with these people. Yes. I mean, I think when I hear stories you know, and there's many, many stories like this. You know, I, I, I try to be philosophical about it, which is just, it, it's just easier said than done. But of course, people are critiquing your script as a commercial venture. So not only artistically, but they're also, they're also saying commercially, do I want to work with Justin? But they're not critiquing you as a man, are they? They're not, they're not saying, I don't like Justin. I'm never going to work with him. They're just talking about this project and this proposition. And I think that's part of the thing of writers separating themselves slightly as well from their work. You know, I think too often we kind of, um, our work becomes us. And therefore yeah. we take things personally, which aren't meant personally, of course. It's just it's just a commercial, those people are wearing it up, aren't they? Going to, I've only got so many years of acting ahead of me. Do I want to do Justin's film or something else? Well, I think they're not even making those decisions, to be honest. I'm sure there are actors who are making those decisions, but the, the decisions are being made by the gatekeeper, by the agents, mm. by the by the people that you're, mm. you know, the, the salespeople, whoever it is, or the managers you're trying to get 
that those are the people who are guarding the gates who they're making that decision absolutely right they're like you know and i think you have to be realistic about it. i mean i don't think it you know what, what i'm not trying to put across at all is that it's a kind of hopeless situation um it isn't but i think you have to be realistic you know you have to understand i think you're right i mean the, the key thing is that it's not about you but it sort of is about you in as much as you know you can't abandon personal responsibility for the situation you're in. And I think in a way I'd reached a stage because of the battle it had to get Narcopolis made and everything else. I think I've become a bit of a sort of hero of my own story. And actually to get a sort of bloody nose like this was actually quite difficult to take initially because I was like, but I'm the guy that gets stuff done. How is this possible? How am I coming up against this kind of complete brick wall of indifference? You know, and, and I think that indifference for me was something I had to face. Um, and, and I found it liberating. You know, you know, I, I, it, it, it's a very different, I feel very different now about these experiences. You know, I'm still as passionate as I ever was. You know, I have a new script now and it's been optioned and, you know, we're, we're, we're about to enter into yet again, a potential casting situation. People are talking about certain scale of actors and, you know, the alarm bells are ringing for me. You know, I'm already I'm not anxious about it, but I'm, I'm very keen to not just repeat myself and find myself back at square one again and go, well, hang on a second. You know, if you, you, you know, you've spent all this time working on this script because, you know, Narcopolis came out what nearly four or five years ago now, you know, so that's quite a substantial amount of time between projects. And I've been busy, I've been doing other stuff, but I haven't directed a feature. I, I've directed bits and pieces, promos and what have you, but again, um, nothing that's been substantial within the film community. And there's a you know, palpable sense that a lot of these people have moved on. I mean, they're looking for different kinds of directors now. They're looking for different kinds of storytellers. Um, yeah, 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 yeah. I mean, you're right. The, clock, the clock's always ticking, I suppose, is the thing that hangs over us all, isn't it? In terms of what's your next thing? How long since your last thing? And it's, um, but it's good to feel that pressure as well a little bit, you know, to keep you sharp and to keep you working. Well, if I, I, I take it back to our original discussion four years ago, uh, Justin, which was just like, in terms of career and, and creativity and effort that's required, you know, you were in a very nice job and working title and I was always just amazed that you left and then really <laughs> admired your steel that you just kind of went for it and you made things happen as it was, you were like a great debut feature and things seemed to be going well. I mean, just in case anybody listening on social media just goes, three middle white, middle-aged white guys talking about first world problems or whatever, you know, there is a lot of vulnerability that you're exposing yourself to once you decide to pursue a career in this fashion, no matter who you are. And this is the kind of things that you're going to face inevitably, I think. This is what it comes down to. Um, because we, Justin, we fall into the trap of, you know, we've listened to the podcast, we, we read books and we read all the articles. And you think certain things are going to happen if you do certain things in a certain way, like make a short film or make a debut feature, you know, and the short film wins an award or the debut feature gets released. You think, well, I've read uh, Dirty Deep Down Dirty Pictures, what it is, Peter Biskind, and they were selling their debut features, you know, that they made for 50 grand in Sundance for a million. So why can't that happen for me, you know? Yeah. Uh, but of course, then in the reality of it, it's just like things never happen the way you think. I mean, so a lot of what you say kind of resonates with me in terms of like me, I gave up my job and I made a short film and it did well. And then I was doing EastEnders and everything was going really great. And then everything crashed completely. 
just mm. as I was kind of thinking I was indestructible or just on a complete roll. So it is kind of interesting how it challenges you personally, as you describe. But as we're running out of time, tell us about Sherwood, um, because it's interesting, that YouTube series, because that's been a big success as well, right? Yeah, and that's quite interesting story, because that, of course, was, I mean, yeah, so, so Sherwood is an adaptation of Robin Hood, but it's a complete reimagining. Robin Hood is a 14-year-old girl set in the 23rd century in a submerged Britain, so everything's underwater except for a few landmarks, etc. So it's classic sort of, early, you know, pre-teen sort of dystopian stuff. Um, fantastic team. So producers I've known from back in the day brought me into the project. We then go into the sort of lion's den of YouTube and Google, which was amazing, mind blowing, and also really quite challenging in many, many ways. I mean, they're not, um, they're not your ordinary broadcaster. And I think, you know, if they ever listen to this, they might disagree, but it, there was a sense that that they were behind us, but at the same time, they were kind of, by the time it got to the release of the show, they kind of moved on. And what's fascinating about that was that for reasons known only to the, the, the gods of, of the internet, the show was successful. You know, they launched the pilot episode and we got, you know, two, three, four, five, six, seven, you know, into the millions of views. And it sort of took, gathered momentum over time. And it was, it was behind, there was a paywall behind the, the first episode so you had to you could watch episode one for free then you had to pay for the rest so it slowed down the other episodes the take-up was less and i think they were still they were still experimenting with the model but long and short it was that over the course of time since it came out in 2016 it's racked up over 50 million views as a series now so it's quite an interesting um proposition but then you know extraordinarily so that you you you, you celebrate that success there was lots of discussions of a second series. And then about four weeks ago, or probably two months ago, now YouTube turned around and go, do you know what, we're kind of done with this. So mm. we're sort of not doing a second series, having prepped a second series last year and started thinking about how we're going to tell it. So maybe we will again, I think we're probably going to look for other partners, but you know, it's that, I think I've just realized that it's, I think that to abandon this idea of the sort of linear pathway and to understand that actually really the second act is much more Homeric in its structure. It's a series of islands where you're occasionally you drink from the most beautiful fountain. You, 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 you are seduced by the most beautiful woman. I'm using a metaphors, obviously, but you, <laughs> but the, but the, but in between that is the fucking ocean that's going to kill you. People want to spear you in the head. Monsters want to eat you, you know, over your shoulder, there's stuff that's coming at you from all directions. And that's, that's the life. And I think, you know, that's what I've learned is that I, I, I was always, I was all about the little islands and I forgot about the ocean in between. And I kind of relish it now. Now I'm no longer, you know, upset by that prospect. Like, I don't care anymore. Like, great, bring it on. Do you know what I mean? Like that, because I think that's the life. I mean, you know, most life is the ocean. True. And you're flailing around looking for something to grab hold of so you don't drown. And occasionally something comes along that keeps you alive for the next 10 weeks, two years, mm. five years, whatever it is, before that then collapses, you're underwater again, and you're looking for the next one. And well, I think- I, I, I think we'll have to end on that fantastic analogy, Justin. <laughs> but I, I'm convinced everyone listening will identify with your kind of Robertson Crusoe on a life raft between projects analogy who's gonna go down in history. I think that's uh, where we're going to hear people talking about that in the future. Um, and, uh, you know, we've got to catch up again in another four years and hear about your next island, I guess. 
I love it, and I'd love to catch up. It'd be great. It's really great to speak to you again. Let's do it in person soon. Yeah, absolutely. Let's catch up. All right, listeners. Well, that's all we've got time for. Uh, we'll catch you next time on the UK Scriptwriters Podcast. And as Danny said at the start, check out our book. Cheers, and say goodbye, everyone. Cheers. Thanks, guys. Bye, everyone. Bye, everyone. Bye, everyone.